This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is looking outside ourselves. In the first half, M. Catherine Thomas shares her address, the doer of our deeds and the speaker of our words. Then in the second half, Mark Alden Callister speaks on Lost and Found. My subject this morning concerns the pursuit of self-esteem. I'm going to resist defining self-esteem and simply use the term to circumscribe a number of ways of viewing the self. I would like to explore the nature of the self and the conditions under which it flourishes. In particular, I want to ask this question. What is the eternal value of the pursuit of self-esteem? Whatever the valid uses of the term self-esteem are, however much good is intended, I wonder if self-esteem isn't, after all, a red herring. The term red herring comes from the practice of dragging this smelly fish across a trail to destroy the original scent. Thus, a red herring is a diversion intended to distract attention from the real issue. I suggest that the issue of self-esteem is a diversion to distract us from the real issue of our existence. We might be justified in telling people to fix their self-esteem in order to solve their most basic problems if we knew nothing of man's premortal life or the spiritual purposes of his earthly probation or his glorious destiny. But the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches the true nature and the true needs of the self. I think there are two major human conditions that the self is subject to that may have led to the idea that the pursuit of self-esteem was important. first one might be called man's vulnerability or even pain incident to the fall. And the conflict, the second one, conflict and insecurity or pain created by personal sin. First, the pain incident to fallenness. Like our Savior, though to a lesser degree, we condescended to come to a fallen world having agreed to submit to a considerable reduction in our premortal powers. As we came to earth, separated from the presence of heavenly parents, we died spiritually, and in a sense, we were orphaned. And now, with memory veiled and much reduced from our premortal estate, Somewhat as aliens in a world that is inimical to our spiritual natures, we may carry an insecurity, a self-pain, which pervades much of our emotional life. Like Adam and Eve, we feel our self-consciousness or our spiritual nakedness. The scriptures teach about this nakedness as a feeling of guilt or shame. Do we as well have a sense of loss from deeply buried memories, perhaps, of who we once were in contrast with who we are now? But here is my main question. Is it possible that in our efforts to find security we have fallen into a number of errors? Is it possible that we have created the whole issue of self-esteem in an attempt to soothe this fallen, homesick self? But there is a better way. Our Savior, who felt all this pain himself, would not 
send us to earth without compensation for the distresses he knew we would feel, separated from him. He would not leave us comfortless. You recall the passages in John in which the Savior has told the Twelve that he will be with them only a little while. Peter responded with, Lord, why can I not follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus senses their pain, almost their desperation at his leaving them, and he promises, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. The English word comfortless translates the Greek word for orphans, so he says in effect, I will not leave you orphaned. The Savior continued, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Here we grasp the really stunning insight that the Lord Jesus Christ himself is that consolation, that compensation, designed from the foundation of the world to comfort the human pain of fallenness to compensate men and women for their earthly reductions and sacrifices. Only the atonement, or more expressly the atonement, can heal the pain of the fall. Now to the second source of pain. The Lord explained, speaking to Adam, When thy children begin to grow up, sin conceiveth in their hearts, and they taste the bitter. What is this bitterness? The Lord says it is the conception of sin in our hearts. The pain of fallenness, then, is compounded by the bitterness of sin. To understand why sin produces bitterness in the human soul, we remember that each individual spirit was begotten by glorious heavenly parents and thereby inherits a nature which is at its very core light, truth, intelligence, and glory. Knowest thou not, the prophet John Taylor wrote, that thou art a spark of deity struck from the fire of his eternal blaze and brought forth in the midst of eternal burnings? Christ says, I am the true light that is in you, and you are in me. Otherwise, ye could not abound. Christ is the life and the light of every person. King Benjamin teaches similarly that God preserves us from day to day, even lending us breath that we may live and move, even supporting us from one moment to another, and that all we have and are come from him. I ask, if we live and move and have our being in him, where is self-esteem? How do I even separate myself out from the abundant grace that makes my life and even my intellect go forward in some marvelous symbiosis with my Creator? Is it not obvious that we, created out of the very stuff of truth and permeated by His power, cannot live against our own natures of light and truth and intelligence, without setting up conflict 
and spiritual disease within ourselves. The quality of our emotional and spiritual existence is absolutely governed by divine law. And whether or not we know about these laws or observe them, we are continually and profoundly affected by them. I suggest that at the base of much so-called low self-esteem lie spiritual conflict and self-disapproval, whether conscious or not, over neglect of the spiritual laws that govern happiness and freedom. So here we have a challenging situation. A person whose primeval nature is truth and light and purity begins under the influence of a fallen environment and a fallen body to act against his spiritual nature. His sins of ignorance or choice produce bitterness, and he begins to suffer. But usually he doesn't know what the real source of his unhappiness is. He thinks it has something to do with the people around him. Or he thinks it has to do with his circumstances. But Elder Neil Maxwell observes, The heaviest load we feel is often from the weight of our unkept promises and our unresolved sins, which press down relentlessly upon us. Thus, resistance to our spiritual natures manifests itself as guilt, despair, resentment, self-pity, depression, feelings of victimization, fear over the scarcity of needed things, and many other forms of distress. These are all functions of the fallen self, and we all necessarily experience them. But the pursuit of self-esteem will not solve the problems of the self that is in conflict because of sin. It will not even solve the problems of those who suffer from others' sins against them. King Benjamin called his fallen self the natural man, he said. The natural man is an enemy to God and has been from the fall of Adam and will be forever and ever unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit and putteth off the natural man and becometh a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord and becometh as a child, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him even as a child, doth submit to his Father. Could this putting off of the natural man through the Lord Jesus Christ actually be a recovery of our true, premortal self? We have this account of King Benjamin's people who, upon hearing the word of God, became painfully conscious of their carnal state. They cried out, Oh, have mercy and apply the atoning blood of Christ that we may receive forgiveness of our sins. Whereupon their sensitive souls were cleansed by the Holy Spirit, top to bottom of all their accumulations of willfulness and disobedience. And into that vacuum rushed the sublime love of God. They received, the scripture says, peace of conscience because of their exceeding faith in Jesus Christ. I suppose they probably had not realized just how spiritually sluggish they were until that mighty power consumed in love all their sins and their pain 
and their sickness and their infirmity. They became acquainted with God's goodness and tasted his love. King Benjamin, seeing their joy, taught them how to retain it. He said, I would that ye should remember and always retain in remembrance the greatness of God and your own nothingness and his goodness and long-suffering towards you. If ye do this, ye shall always rejoice and be filled with the love of God and always retain a remission of your sins. What does the Lord mean by the nothingness of man? We recoil at nothingness because we try so hard to overcome our feelings of unimportance. But nothingness refers to man's state, as the scripture says, in this mortal sphere. Nothingness describes not man's lack of value but rather his powerlessness during his mortal probation and especially his all-encompassing need for the Lord. Nothingness reminds us of the reductions we voluntarily subscribe to before the foundations of this world in order to come to earth and learn how to be taught from on high. Elder Richard G. Scott recently told of a sacred experience when strong impressions came to him during a period when he struggled to do a work the Lord had given him far beyond his personal capacity to fulfill. The Lord said to him, Testify to instruct, edify, and lead others to full obedience, not to demonstrate anything of self. All who are puffed up shall be cut off. And then the Lord said to him, You are nothing in and of yourself, Richard. That was followed with some specific counsel on how to be a better servant. End quote. You remember Ammon, who joyfully described his own nothingness. He said, I do not boast in my own strength, nor in my own wisdom, but behold, my joy is full. Yea, my heart is is brim with joy, and I will rejoice in my God. Yea, I know that I am nothing. As to my strength, I am weak. Therefore, I will not boast of myself, but I will boast of my God, for in his strength I can do all things. For Ammon, it seems the whole concept of self-esteem was irrelevant. Being filled with the love of God was of far greater worth than any sense of self-confidence. If one grand objective of earth life is to gain access to the grace of Jesus Christ for our trials and divine development, then we will immediately realize that self-confidence is a puny substitute for God-confidence. With respect to confidence, the Lord says, Let thy bowels be full of charity towards all men, and let virtue Garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Then shall thy confidence wax strong in the presence of God. The Lord identifies love and virtue as the essential ingredients in feelings of confidence and security. By these we dwell safely in the Holy One of Israel.
Indeed, might the pursuit of self-confidence actually pull us away from the connection the Lord is trying to make? Might it merely produce carnal security, scriptures say? Have you noticed that the pursuit of self-esteem seems to produce anxiety, while increasing humility and faith in the Lord produce consolation and rest? Mormon describes Church members who, waxing stronger and stronger in their humility and firmer and firmer in the faith of Christ, are filled with joy and consolation. And Alma instructs his son to teach the people to humble themselves and to be meek and lowly in heart, for such shall find rest to their souls. Some may not like the dichotomy between the pursuit of self-esteem and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some may say that you can pursue and have both, but I do not find this idea of both pursuits in the scriptures. It seems to me that King Benjamin finds these two incompatible. He says, Remember your own nothingness and God's goodness. In trying to have both, is there a possible double-mindedness? James says that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And here Nephi, as he speaks of self-promotion, he says, Priestcrafts are that men preach and set themselves up for a light unto the world, that they may get gain and praise of the world. But they seek not the welfare of Zion. Behold, the Lord hath forbidden this thing, wherefore the Lord God hath given a commandment, that all men should have charity, which charity is love, and except they should have charity, they were nothing. Nephi seems to view setting oneself up for a light to the world in order to get praise as directly antithetical to having the pure love of Christ. One apparently can't do both. The Savior says, Therefore hold up your light that it may shine unto the world. Behold, I am the light which ye shall hold up. Again, he says that if our eye be single to his glory, our whole bodies will be filled with light. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. It seems as though the less attention we can give to self-esteem, the more light we can have. Low self-esteem is often associated with feelings of incapacity or a sense of victimization or the realization that we can't make happen the opportunities, the approval, the feelings, etc., that we feel we need. But our relief comes when we realize that God made us powerless so that as we cleaved to Him, He could work His mighty miracles in our lives. Indeed, Moroni teaches that hopelessness and despair come of that iniquity, which is lack of faith in one's access to the Lord Jesus Christ. We may think that we or some other mortal opens the necessary doors to our future, but this conclusion is an error. We ourselves do not open these doors. Only the Lord does. We give him our obedience and our diligence, our cooperation, but he opens and closes the doors to our lives. We can only make right choices. He controls the consequences of our choices. Often doors have closed before us that seemed to lead to the opportunities we thought we had to have. 
We may have assumed that the closed door was a reflection of some inadequacy in ourselves. But perhaps the closed door had nothing to do with whether we were good or bad or capable or incompetent. Rather, a loving Father shapes, even now, our path according to a prearranged, premortal covenant. The opening or the closing of these various doors is absolutely dependent on the Lord's perfect perception of our developmental needs. All the elements that we really need for our individual experience here He puts onto our path. The most important things that will happen to us in this life will come to us often by no initiative of our own, but they come because He is piloting the plan. He says that He does nothing save it be for our benefit. He has promised that all things work together to our good in order that we may be conformed to the image of His Son. Therefore, one does not need to fear that one's future lies in, say, the fact that an authority over us plays favorites, or that one's employer isn't well disposed toward him or any other number of things. Because under such a belief, one might be tempted to think that only self-promotion or image manipulation or compromising of what one really believes will open the doors one needs to open. But even though someone in authority thinks he opens doors, there is really only one keeper of the gate. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, he says. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Now I ask you, as various doors open and close, as the Lord Jesus Christ orchestrates even the details of our lives, where is the need to pursue self-esteem? We don't need it. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will take us so much farther. Christ himself is our model where the self is concerned. Hear the manner in which he presents himself. He says, The Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son. Or, I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. Or, the words that I speak unto you I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. You remember that Moroni wrote that the resurrected, perfected Christ spoke to him in plain humility. Elder Maxwell observed that, quote, the Savior, the brightest individual ever to walk this planet, never sought to prosper or to conquer according to his genius and strength, end quote. Alma identified this precept that man prospers by his own resources as the doctrine of the Antichrist. It seems to me that the self may actually be an interloper in most of what we do, and that we can find relief from the stresses and strains of self-promotion by saying, in effect, Get thee behind me, self. I wonder if this is what the Savior means when he says, He who seeketh to save his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. The self seems to be a constant intruder as we strive for selflessness. 
But President Benson pointed out that Christ removed self as the force in his perfect life. It was not my will, but thine be done. I have become aware of how demanding of attention the self is. What a lot of prayer and deliberate living it will take for me to remove myself as the force in my life. Impulses rising like the ticking of a clock in their persistent quest for self-promotion, self-defense, and self-gratification. It seems as though a change is needed at the very fountain of my heart, out of which all thought and emotion rise. Could I actually come to the point where I could act without calculating my own self-interest all the time? Could I really live my daily life so that I was constantly searching out, listening for the Lord's will, and drawing down His grace to accomplish it? And when the Lord in His mercy meshes His power with my agency and my effort and brings forth some measure of success, I ask, where is self-esteem? Where is even the need for self-esteem? I feel as though I just want to say instead, O Lord, Increase my faith. How then does one appropriately think about oneself? I offer you Elder Enzio Bush's remarks. He said, A disciple of Christ is constantly, even in the midst of all regular activities, striving all day long through silent prayer and contemplation to be in the depths of self-awareness, to keep him in the state of meekness and lowliness of heart. It seems appropriate as well to be conscious of our preciousness to our Father, while at the same time to feel meek and lowly before his sacrifices on our behalf, his reverence for us, and his continuing graciousness to us. Again, Elder Bush has spoke of the point at which we realize the Lord's love. This is the place where we suddenly see the heavens open as we feel the full impact of the love of our Heavenly Father, which fills us with indescribable joy. With this fulfillment of love in our hearts, we will never be happy anymore just by being ourselves or living our own lives. We will not be satisfied until we have surrendered our lives into the arms of the loving Christ and until He has become the doer of all our deeds and He has become the speaker of all our words. When Christ is the doer of all our deeds and the speaker of all our words, I have to ask, where is self-esteem? Where is the need of self-esteem? I propose that self-esteem becomes a non-issue for the person who is perfecting his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If I decide to give up some of the attention my self demands, what will I replace it with? The Lord answers, Look unto me in every thought, doubt not, fear not. The self is so demanding that perhaps one can only let go of the pursuit of self-promotion as one cleaves to the Lord Jesus Christ. Like Peter walking on the water, it may be our sudden self-consciousness that will cause us to fall. 
The world speaks of self-image, but Alma spoke of receiving the image of God in our countenances. In fact, as the lectures on faith inform us, all those who keep His commandments shall grow up from grace to grace and become joint heirs with Jesus Christ, possessing the same mind, being transformed into the same image, even the express image of Him who fills all in all, being filled with the fullness of His glory and become one in Him, even as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. It seems as though the perception of the self as an entity separate from God will, under the right conditions, just get thinner and thinner. President Benson has pressed us to be changed for Christ, captained by Christ, and consumed in Christ. So many issues that revolve around the subject of self fade like the dew in the sun as one cultivates faith in the Savior. Without Him, nothing else matters. No amount of self-esteem or anything else can adequately fill the void. I'll close with some thoughts of Robert Browning that were quoted by President David O. McKay. There is an answer to the passionate longing of the heart for fullness. Live in all things outside yourself by love, and you will have joy. That is the life of God. It ought to be our life. In Him it is accomplished and perfect, but in all created things it is a lesson learned slowly and through difficulty. End quote. One who practices faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will find relief from the stresses and anxieties of the pursuit of self-esteem. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is looking outside ourselves. We've just heard from M. Catherine Thomas. After the break, we'll return with Mark Alden Callister for Lost and Found. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is looking outside ourselves. Next is Mark Alden Callister, professor in the BYU Department of Communications at the time of this address, titled Lost and Found. The other day while walking through the Wilkinson Center on my way to the Cougarie, I noticed the windows of the Serve office, and I saw where students had turned the name Serve into a question. Using colorful markers, students had covered all the windows with responses as to why they serve. I was intrigued and stopped to read them. A few of the answers to why serve were humorous or just incredibly honest, such as, because I usually get refreshments, to get dates, women, and because when you are in the service of your fellow man, you are closer to the food. But most offered serious reflections, such as, because I love my Heavenly Father, because the gospel is delicious to me, and because I want to put more good into a troubled world. As I continued to read, I realized that there were lots of reasons as to why serve. 
I pondered some of the listed reasons and thought of my own motives for serving and wondered if perhaps my service could use some refining at times. Well, if the intent of the good people in the Wise Serve office was to get us thinking more about service, it worked on me. What began as a simple attempt to get a salad at the Cougar Eat has turned into weeks of thinking on this topic and now a devotional talk. So this morning, I would like to write on that window, so to speak, and share with you some of my thoughts on why serve. I would like to begin by quickly examining some primary reasons for serving. Elder Dallin H. Oaks has made the task easy for me. In a conference address given when I was a student, he introduced reasons why people serve in ascending order from lesser to greater. The first and lowest reason is hope of earthly rewards, where our service is focused on receiving honor, praise, or recognition. Next is good companionship, which is centered on social benefits. Both of these reasons, he notes, are self-serving. Moving upward along the continuum is the fear of punishment, a concern for what will happen to us if we don't faithfully serve. Next is serving out of duty or loyalty, a motive that's commendable and will merit blessings but still falls short of the ideal. And then there's hope of an eternal reward, a powerful source of motivation, but not quite there yet. So have any of these reasons ever found their way into your service? Admittedly, they have to mine. Elder Oaks then reminds us of the highest reason, the more excellent way, which is charity, the pure love of Christ, the greatest of all virtues. He explains, It is not enough to serve God with all of our might and strength. He who looks into our hearts and knows our minds demands more than this. In order to stand blameless before God at the last day, we must also serve Him with all our heart and mind. Close quote. So if we hunted down another set of windows on campus to write, we might pose this question, why serve out of charity? Before exploring the question, I'd like to just take quickly a moment to review what this virtue is and how it's developed. Mormon explains that charity is the pure love of Christ, that it suffereth long, it's kind, envieth not, is not puffed up, not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and endureth all things. We know that charity encompasses all godly virtues. It's not merely a kindly act. It is something we become. And that desire leads and grows out of a study of the life of Jesus Christ and a commitment to follow him. We learn that prayer also is critical in developing charity because charity is a divine gift that is bestowed upon us. Mormon teaches, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart that ye may be filled with this love which he has bestowed upon all who are true followers of his Son, Jesus Christ, that you may become the sons of God, that when he shall appear we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, that we may have this hope, that we may be purified as he is pure. Now on to the question. Why serve out of charity? In offering my own answer, I'd like to start with a story. While living in Tucson, Arizona, my wife Colette and I were watching the local news one Saturday night when we heard the story of an eight-year-old boy who had earlier that morning wandered from a campground south of Tucson and failed to return. 
The terrain into which he wandered included mountains, gullies, foothills, covered in desert vegetation, much of it dense, making the search very difficult. The boy had now spent a hot day and was about to spend a cold night alone in the desert. Colette and I thought of the parents, of the unimaginable anguish they must be feeling. We also considered the young boy alone, cold in the desert. We thought of our own young children and couldn't imagine how we would feel if they were lost. Just before midnight, the phone rang. Brother Collister, this is the bishop. Did you hear the news about the lost boy? I confirmed I had. The boy is in our stake, he said. He was on a father and son's outing, and early this morning he got separated from a group of older boys who were exploring a short distance from the camp. People have been searching since then, but he is still lost. Would you meet in the morning at my house to help in the search? They need more volunteers. Very early the next morning, before the sun rose, a large group of us gathered at the bishop's home and quickly set out in vans to the search site. As we drove into the foothills and neared the campground, I saw cars leaving, carrying volunteers who had already spent a long day and a night searching the desert. The boy's father, I later learned, was not aware that replacements were on the way. And with many volunteers returning home to eat and sleep, he wondered if there would be enough volunteers to cover the expanding search area that now extended for miles in all directions. But when he saw our large caravan pull into the parking lot, Filled with volunteers, he was overcome with emotion. I remember seeing him cover his face in his hands and cry at the sight of so many people coming to search for his son. The leader of the search and rescue, a large burly man with a thick beard, quickly organized us into small teams and assigned us search areas on a map that lay across the hood of his car. We felt the urgency of the rescue as he explained that 24 hours had passed since the boy wandered from camp, that the boy had already gone through a very hot day and a cold night, that the search area was immense and that the desert terrain was rugged. I was on the last team to receive an assignment, and while waiting, I watched the boy's father. I saw his anguish. I could only imagine the overwhelming pain and concern he was feeling. I listened as he expressed gratitude to the departing teams as they set out into the desert. You couldn't help but feel a love for this good father and his lost son. As I stood next to the leader, I suddenly heard the crackle of his radio. We then heard an excited voice from one of the search teams exclaim, We found him. We found him. He's okay. The leader, who had shown great control up to this point, now jumped in the air for joy and actually started to cry. His voice was choked with emotion as he called out to the boy's father and to all present, they found him. The leader called for all the search parties to return to the campground and then quickly drove off with the joyful father to pick up the son. I then watched a beautiful scene unfold. Across the desert and over the hills, largely hidden from view up to that point, came the search parties. They were numerous. I watched them materialize from hills, gullies, canyons, and the valley below. Some volunteers looked very tired and worn, having searched since the beginning, but full of joy at the news. Soon the vehicle carrying the son and his father arrived back in camp. I could not hold back the tears when the father emerged from the car holding his son. The son's face was buried in his father's neck as he clung tightly to him. A large group of volunteers quickly crowded around to cherish the sight of the father and his son reunited. 
The state president asked for all news cameras to be turned off and hats removed while he offered a prayer of gratitude. The image of the father holding his son, encircled by an army of volunteers with heads bowed, is one of the sweetest memories of my life. Now, there are many parallels from this experience that I might highlight, such as the urgency of these last days in searching for the lost sheep, the sacrifice of such efforts entail, the persistence required. But it was the image of the Father during that search and rescue that has remained most salient in my memory and that I would like to focus on. That morning, I received a small glimpse into what our Heavenly Father must feel as he looks out and sees many of his children struggling and wandering across a rapidly darkening, spiritually hostile landscape. For him who is perfect in love and compassion, whose creations are continually before his eyes, the pain and anguish he must feel is hard to imagine. I think of the words to the hymn, Dear to the heart of the shepherd, dear are the ninety and nine, dear are the sheep that have wandered out in the desert to pine. Hark, he is earnestly calling, tenderly pleading today. Will you not seek for my lost ones, off from my shelter astray? Out in the desert they wander, hungry and helpless and cold. Off to the rescue he hastens, bringing them back to the fold. Enoch was given a similar perspective on a far grander scale than mine. The Lord showed him in vision all the inhabitants of the earth, and he witnessed the disturbing spread of Satan's power. As it covered the world, he saw Satan and his angels laughing and rejoicing in their success at enticing God's children into darkening and forbidden lands. Then Enoch's perspective was suddenly and forever changed. He saw something that absolutely astonished him. He saw God weeping. How is it that thou canst weep, seeing thou art holy, and from all eternity to all eternity, he asks, unable to hide his surprise? Thou art just, thou art merciful and kind forever, and mercy shall go before thy face and have no end. How is it thou canst weep? In answer to Enoch's question, the Lord described the future suffering of his disobedient and unrepentant children and says, Wherefore should not the heavens weep, seeing these shall suffer? Enoch learns that God feels anguish and pain and sorrow for his wandering and suffering children. Enoch witnesses the great depths of God's love and compassion for each and every one of us, not just on some general, abstract level, but on an individual, intimate, and personal level. His love and concern and interest in us are beyond our comprehension. That morning, I also saw the gratitude of the boy's father for those who so willingly and lovingly sacrificed. I witnessed his great joy at the return of his son. Our Heavenly Father feels these emotions as well, but in a far greater degree. He is ever grateful to those who search, lift, and bless. Those who go out and search for the lost ones or those who struggle certainly offer our Heavenly Father some relief from his concern, anguish, and sorrow. And his joy is full in the sheep that return to the fold or for the lambs that are comforted. So, for me... Part of the answer to the question, why serve out of charity, is rooted in God's infinite love for his children and his desire that his children experience that love. He accomplishes this in part through his under-shepherds, those who lovingly assist him in his work. When our service springs forth from the wells of charity, 
we experience God's love as it flows through us to those we serve, and they, in turn, come to feel that love. Let me illustrate with a story. Many years ago, as a freshman at BYU-Hawaii, I was passing through some very difficult life experiences. I was also aware of my imperfections and felt distant from my Heavenly Father. I was not guilty of any egregious sins, but I was not where I wanted to be spiritually. I was much like the boy who, through carelessness, had wandered into the desert. On a particular Sunday, a conference was held on campus presided over by President Spencer W. Kimball. He spoke to a large gathering of saints who had come to hear the prophet. I remember feeling the Spirit as he spoke. Following the closing prayer, all arose, and in respectful silence we watched that great man exit the building. As we filed out, two young Polynesian students I had met at the dorms approached me and invited me to walk with them to the Hawaii temple, where they were going to spend the afternoon reading the scriptures. I was a bit surprised at the invitation, not knowing them very well at the time but I gladly accepted. When we arrived at the temple, we walked to the upper grounds. I didn't have scriptures with me, so as they sat on the grass to read, I walked a short distance away to sit on a stone bench. I cannot remember all I thought and felt that day. It was many years ago. But I remember thinking about my Heavenly Father and how I wanted to draw closer to Him. I started to pray. But as I did, I do remember feeling heavy and discouraged. At that time in my life, I had a hard time envisioning a God full of love and compassion. I felt I was praying to someone who was always displeased and disappointed with me and far away. I didn't understand the true nature of my Heavenly Father, but my perspective was about to change. As I sat on the bench, my attention was suddenly drawn to a small group of people excitedly walking toward the entrance of the temple. I looked beyond them and saw, to my great surprise, President Kimball and some local and general church leaders coming out of the temple. They were walking down a sidewalk that led to a gate where cars had just pulled up to carry them to the airport. A half dozen or so people lined the sidewalk, waiting to greet him as he made his way to the awaiting cars. I stood up and apprehensively approached the sidewalk, deciding to remain a short distance away from where he would pass. However irrational it may sound, I was afraid to approach him. I decided that as a prophet, he might be able to peer into my heart and see my imperfections. I felt that I was in need of greater spirituality and a serious haircut. So I decided to remain what I consider to be a safe distance from the sidewalk. Well, I miscalculated. As he passed by, he looked right at me. I then recorded in my journal what happened next. President Kimball suddenly stopped and turned and headed right for me. The prophet grabbed my hand, gave me a hug, and kissed me on my cheek, and then looked me in the eyes and said, I love you. End of quote. I was overcome with emotion. The only words I was able to get out were, thank you. I felt something in that hug and expression of love. I then watched him through my tears as he climbed into an awaiting car. He looked through the window at us with such pure and loving eyes and waved goodbye as he drove away. I then ran behind the temple and had a good cry. Yes, I felt President Kimball's love for me, but his love pointed to the wellspring from which it flowed. I felt an outpouring 
of my Heavenly Father's love for me, so real and so clear. The feeling remained with me for a time. President Kimball's act of kindness could have come from the groundskeeper that day because if it had flowed from the fountains of charity, I'm convinced the same results would have followed. Having it come from the prophet certainly made it very special. But what flowed through him and was communicated to me was my Heavenly Father's love. He was reaching out to me through one of his special servants and through two wonderful students through whom the pure love of Christ flowed to me that day. Through that experience and others, I've learned that as we strive to follow the Savior and as we fervently pray for charity, our service undergoes a remarkable change. We begin to feel his love more keenly for those we serve, and we feel his love for us as we serve, and the outcome can be marvelous. When our Heavenly Father bestows his love upon us, it is not meant to simply pool within us. But as it flows through us to others in Christ-like service, we are transformed. Like a river flowing over rough stones that with time become smooth, polished, and beautiful, his pure love as it flows through us transforms our nature and blesses those we serve. President Kimball once said, My life is like my shoes, to be worn out in service. That same discipleship defines President Monson's life and so many others that we all come to know. They are Christ-like because they strive to serve as he did. Perhaps at times you may feel that God is not aware of you or that you haven't felt his love. I believe that if you will reflect for just a moment on the loving service you receive from others, you will see the workings of the Lord moving in the background. The Lord may move someone to offer a hug a smile, a kind note, or an invitation. I believe that Heavenly Father is far more involved in those experiences than we may know. Another reason we serve out of charity is because charity can deepen our love for our Heavenly Father and for His children. Robert L. Millett once said, As we live in a manner that allows the Spirit to be with us regularly, we begin to see things as they really are. Our love for God grows as we begin to sense His goodness for us, and we become aware of His involvement in our lives. And as we begin to acknowledge His hand in all that is noble and good and worthy. I remember a few weeks ago feeling weighed down with a heavy matter. I prayed for a time, asking the Lord to lift my spirits. I arose from my knees and went downstairs to the kitchen where my wife Colette was loading the dishwasher. She stopped in the middle of loading, looked up at me, and immediately walked over to give me a hug. When she eventually pulled away, she said, Are you all right? I was surprised at her question, knowing she knew nothing of the difficult matter. She said she felt an impression in that moment to give me a hug. I marveled at a Heavenly Father's kindness and tender mercies that he would prompt my wife to lift my spirit. He might have lifted my spirit as I, while I was praying, which he sometimes does for us. But instead, he chose to work through her. As a result, Colette felt and witnessed his love, as did I, and the experience served to bring her and me even closer together. At times, we're called upon to serve those who at times may make it difficult to love them. The Savior taught, For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? 
But charity in such moments can soften hearts and heal relationships. I remember on one occasion a frustrated, angry ward member speaking quite sharply and unkindly to a bishop, criticizing his leadership. While I listened, I found my anger rising, feeling his criticism was unfair and inappropriate, for I had such great respect for this bishop and knew of his great sacrifices and able leadership. After the ward member concluded his comments, I was ready to provide a strong defense for the bishop and tell the ward member how I felt about his behavior. But before I could speak, this great bishop, with eyes moist from the stinging rebuke, replied with such genuine love to the member. Thank you for sharing your comments, he said. I know that I have shortcomings, and you have shown me where I can improve. I commit to do better. Now what can I do to make things better for you? A spirit came into that room, and a change came over the ward member, a visible softening, followed by an apology. The bishop expressed his genuine love for this man, and the meeting came to a close. I remained in the room until the ward member had left, and I was alone with the bishop. I couldn't speak. I was so moved by what I just witnessed. It was charity, pure and sweet. The bishop looked over at me, and he could tell that I was emotional. He asked if I was all right. I couldn't answer for a moment. I then told him that I had just witnessed one of the most beautiful Christ-like experiences of my life and thanked him for it. In closing, I want to draw upon Ezekiel's vision in which he sees a millennial temple built in Jerusalem and witnesses waters suddenly bursting forth from the threshold of the temple flowing eastward to the Dead Sea. Joseph Smith spoke of the literal fulfillment of the future event. Now imagine Ezekiel standing on the bank under a hot Judean sun, looking over this miraculous river in the desert as it flows from the temple and journeys eastward. In the vision, an angel invites Ezekiel to walk with him along the bank a thousand cubits and then wade across the river. As Ezekiel crosses, he notices that the waters reach to his ankles. While this must have offered him some relief from the heat, The Lord never meant for him to have an ankle-deep experience. No, the river offered far more. But to feel more of this river, Ezekiel obediently followed the angel further downriver along the bank. As he progresses another thousand cubits, he's instructed to once more cross the river. This time, the river has risen up to his knees. The pure, clear water flowing through the hot, arid desert valley must have been so refreshing to Ezekiel. Perhaps his desire grows, wanting to experience more of this remarkable river. Another stretch of obediently following the angel, and another crossing, he finds the waters have risen and now reach his waist. Again he is called to follow, and again he obeys. After walking along the banks for a final thousand cubits, Ezekiel is astonished by what he sees. He records, It was a river that I could not pass over. The rivers were risen, waters to swim in, a river that could not be passed over. End of quote. Waters to swim in, a river so vast and mighty that it could not be passed over. What an appropriate symbol for the infinite love that flows from our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. But the angel has one more surprise for Ezekiel. He shows him the transforming and miraculous power of this river. Ezekiel sees that everything the waters touch, they bless, heal, and prosper. 
The desert landscape is literally transformed. It comes alive with an abundance of trees and fruits of all kinds and plants whose leaves contain healing powers. He beholds great fish in the river, drawing people from all around who cast in their nets. To his joy, he then witnesses the pure waters ultimately flowing into the Dead Sea, healing waters forever. Ezekiel concludes, Everything that liveth, which moveth, whithersoever the rivers shall come, shall live. Such transforming and healing powers point to the atonement of Jesus Christ, the ultimate expression of love. My prayer would be that we might desire with all our hearts to swim in such waters, not ankle or knee deep, but experience waters to swim in. This is only possible to the extent that we follow the Savior in faith and obedience and pray with all our hearts that he might bestow his love upon us, that we might feel those living waters of the Spirit, of the pure love that flows to us from our Heavenly Father and his Son. They desire that we direct these waters to others through our Christ-like service. This is why we serve out of charity. The fruits of charity will be a greater desire for the eternal welfare of others, a heart that is quick to forgive and slow to judge, slow to anger, that sees the good in others, that is patient and kind and seeks those in needs. I am grateful for the great shepherds that have blessed my family and me, who have led me to these living waters through Christ-like service. Isn't it exciting to see out over this mortal desert and see so many missionaries over 88,000 strong, young and old, searching for our Heavenly Father's children to bring them out from the desert to these healing waters. It's inspiring to see so many of you making your way to the temple, lovingly fulfilling callings, doing genealogy, performing simple, everyday acts of kindness, a hug, a smile, a compliment, a note, an expression of love. May we strive to do a little better each day. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was looking outside ourselves with thoughts from M. Catherine Thomas and Mark Alden Callister. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.